You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. I had this global vision for teen engagement in something called eSport that I had nothing, knew nothing about. I never played video games. I just, it wasn't part of my DNA, but I had this vision. And at that point, life changed. And I started to do what I did. I built a team. I built a team of volunteers, of people that knew a little bit more than I did about gaming, that knew a little bit about business, that knew a little bit about marketing and philanthropy. And before you know it, started to put some professional staff together, started to raise some money. And with the understanding that we wanted to engage and re-engage not only Jewish teens within the Jewish community, but because of my background with the JCC, all teens. That was Lenny Silberman. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hi, Marnie on the Movers. I'm so glad that you are tuning into this inspiring conversation today with the visionary Lenny Silberman. Lenny Silberman is the CEO and founder of Lost Tribe Esports. He's the former VP of Program Services and Continental Director of the JCC Maccabi Games, where he was for 17 years. He is the former CEO of Henry Kaufman Camps, where he was for 10 years, and director of Emma Kaufman Camp prior to that. Lenny's work and accomplishments have been game-changing in the Jewish community worldwide for kids, teens, and families. He has built a lifelong career around coaching, sports, and summer camp. Lenny has created transformative programs that engage multiple generations, advance personal growth, and deepen community involvement, particularly nurturing positive Jewish identity in young people through sports and camp. On today's episode, Lenny and I talk about where his career began, how he has helped tens of thousands of kids develop tools for living, for being good people, and for understanding the importance of community all through team sports. We touch upon his famous mantras, aka Lennyisms. We talk about his game-changing programs and ideas, including Days of Caring and Sharing and Rachmanas Rule. Lenny talks about his most recent career move into esports and how his new company, Lost Tribe Esports, is uniting teens around the world in these quarantine times. Of course, we discuss Lenny's personal health and fitness goals, and as an avid sports fan, one of his role models and favorite baseball players, Roberto Clemente. Lenny has devoted his career to young people and his belief in the power of sports and recreation experiences to transmit values. He is on the board and has worked on behalf of the Israeli Sports Center for the Disabled in Ramat Gan, Israel, and single-handedly raised funds for them to build a fitness center. He was also selected to represent the JCCs of North America as a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee. He served on the USOC for 14 years. Lenny has received recognition from the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, the Western Pennsylvania 
Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, and the National Council of Youth Sports. I hope you enjoy what you hear. If you do, leave us a review. It's easy. Head over to your app on your Apple phone or device. Scroll through the Marnie on the Move podcast episodes, click on five stars, and leave us a review. Before we get started, I wanted to thank our sponsors, Mad Ritual CBD. Today's episode is fueled by Mad Ritual CBD. Mad Ritual CBD has changed my recovery game in a really big way. Get ready to recover like a rebel with these awesome, high quality CBD infused products. Their CBD balm is off the charts amazing. And I'm not the only one that thinks so. Mad Ritual has 100 plus five star reviews. The balms have five simple organic ingredients coconut oil, shea butter, olive oil, plant wax, CBD, and different blends of essential oils. Personally, I prefer the eucalyptus and peppermint. They also offer a terrific CBD infused total recovery supplement, not just for athletes. The products are formulated to ease all of the aches and pains that come along with being an active human. So, if you are sore from life, Mad Ritual gets it. Founded by women athletes and active entrepreneurs, they are committed to helping active folks bring more balance to their lives. Mad Ritual is offering Marnie on the Move listeners 15% off. Head over to their website, madritual.com, and use the code Marnie on the Move. Now, on to the episode. Where did coaching begin for you? Coaching really began when I started my career back at the Pittsburgh JCC in the summer of 1977. I was working in the Pittsburgh JCC day camp, and I was working a little in the athletic department, and there was a group of guys that was just hanging out, and one thing led to another, and I knew that there was going to be a summer league coming up, and I said, hey, you guys say you want to play. Would you want to play in this league? And they said, of course. And I had never coached before. I mean, I I was an athlete. I, I got coached, but I never did any real formal coaching. And they said, let's go. And I said, okay. So I signed up in the city of Pittsburgh. It was called Ozanam. And it was predominantly inner city black league, although there were some teams that came in from the suburbs that were white. We were the only Jewish team. Although we had non-Jews and black kids on the team, we just signed up and we went to play. And some games we did better than others and other games we didn't do so well. But it was fun. It was learning. It was unique. And it really started to get me going that something that I felt I was pretty good at, it wasn't necessarily so much the X's and O's. It was more of the motivation to get the guys to play hard. It started off mostly with all guys. And then as my career went, moved forward after the second or third year, started to have girls teams at the JCCs as well. But the summer is really where it kicked it off. And the first couple of years, we didn't do so well. But then after a while, we started to win and win and win. We had a nickname. We, we were going in the inner city of Pittsburgh. The JCC was in the city, but now we were going in the inner city with mostly black community. And when we would get there, somebody would say, well, here comes the TJs. And I didn't know what that meant right away. And then finally someone said, you guys are tough Jews. You play hard. That's awesome. So you earned your respect on the court. In basketball, you know, we played baseline to baseline defense, full court, man to man pressure. And part of the reason we did it is I didn't want to cut anybody in the summer. I always had 10 kids or 15 kids show up, had to play everybody. Because again, it wasn't about winning or losing. It was just about having fun and getting better. I had a system where I just put people in in waves. 
you five go in and then you five go in and you five. And then I needed to get them tired. So they would run the entire game, but we were tough. We started to get better and better and started to win. And you just use the magic word. We got respect. In most cases, that was more important to a lot of the kids than winning and losing. A lot of the kids went to school together during the year. And respect is an important thing in athletics. So what kind of athlete were you before you started coaching? <laughs> uh, for all my friends that are listening, I'll just say I was a wannabe athlete. I was always, let's just say that my parents owned a bakery. And when I was sick, when I was a little boy, because my grandparents lived next door to us, my parents worked, my grandmother would take care of me. Whenever I was sick, she'd give me cookies. Okay. <laughs> it get better. So I had this addiction to chocolate chip cookies. Had I not had this addiction to chocolate chip cookies, I probably could have been a player in the NBA. I mean, who knows the NFL, but growing up, it's all because of the chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. I, listen, I played basketball. I played baseball. I played flag football and tennis and I could hit the golf ball. Not well. I was a wannabe athlete that tried hard, but I always also had fun. And that's what you brought to coaching was like the fun of the sport as well. Yeah. I think I had some good role models growing up that coached me recreationally. I learned early on that winning and losing is important, that representing yourself and representing your family and representing the community. When we would travel somewhere, it was the Jewish community. We had JCC across our chest. So I was always talking about not only playing hard, but really about fair play and being a good sport. And early on, I developed this concept called Rachmanis, which in the simplest form is fair play, sportsmanship, compassion. It was very few times that we were killing another team. But when we were, there was just no need to run up the score. Right. People sort of looked at us a little bit differently. And there was values that I taught to my guys that, interestingly enough, that was in the late 70s and early mid-80s. I'm still now I'm friends with a lot of the guys and girls that I coached. And that's what they talk about today. They don't talk about just winning and losing. Although we did a lot of, we had a lot of state championships under our belt, but they really talk about the values that they learned and they're taking those values and they're teaching their children. And that makes me smile. That's incredible. That's a huge testament to everything that you've done. At the JCC, you also were the continental director of the JCC Maccabi Games and vice president of program services of the JCC Association of North America. So talk to me about how you went from Pittsburgh and the JCC to bringing in the Maccabi Games for the JCC and everything else that you've done. So it's a, it gets a little complicated. I'll take one step backwards. Rewind. When I was in Pittsburgh, first I was involved with athletics and sports and became the athletic director. Then one day I mysteriously became the director of Emma Kaufman Camp, which is the resident camp, the sleepaway camp in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I did that for eight summers. So my career was basically around sports and summer camp. And I had some successes in Pittsburgh, and I really thought I was going to stay in Pittsburgh, you know, an only child, family business, had to take care of my mom and dad, you know, and then one day I was at lunch with my mother. I think she might have been celebrating whatever birthday. I can't give her age, although she'll be 90 on Wednesday. Oh my so gosh. Amazing. This is probably 30, about 30 years ago. I just remember saying to her, I said, oh, you know, she said, how's your career going? And I said, oh, it's going great. Things are going really well in Pittsburgh. I'm having fun. 
She asked if I'd ever think about moving. I said, no way. I said, I got to be here to take care of you and daddy. No, don't be ridiculous. We're young. Go and, you know, do what you got to do. Well, what I didn't tell her was I had gotten a call from New York like six months before to go and work for the umbrella organization of all the JCCs in North America that I nicely said, I'm good here in Pittsburgh. Well, then when she said what she said, it was sort of like the ball and chain came off my foot. And I got home and I called the gentleman in New York that was recruiting me to come. And I said, listen, his name was also Lenny, Lenny Rubin, blessed memory. And I said, look, if the position's still open, I'm interested. Well, about a month later, they flew me to New York. The way it worked back then, it was your job to lose. Went through some great interviews and they offered me the job and it was a three positions within one. There was like consulting in sports, recreation, and athletics and aquatics. There was consulting in day and resident camping. And then there was directed JCC Maccabi Games, which were like Jewish Olympics for teenagers. And that was my job. I moved to New York in 1994 and focusing on all three, but really putting more emphasis on the JCC Maccabi Games because that was really fun. That was sports. And when I started, we had about 1,500 kids from about 50 different cities in three different countries participating. And the first games were in Cleveland in 1994. The games back then were every other year. We had a North American set of games and then regional games on the off years. And by the time I left in 2008, the games were happening every year. We were over 6,000 kids, over 100 cities participated, 10 countries. It was phenomenal. It was really like one of the highlights of my career. And in this one case, I think that, as you well know, mm -hmm. Every JCC is open for all races, colors, creeds, national origins, you name it. It's a melting pot. But there are a couple activities within a JCC that are just for Jewish participation in the teenage space. One is the JCC Maccabi Games, and that's for kids that were 13 to 16. And the other is trips to Israel, summer trips to Israel. That's basically every JCC, you know, Maccabi and Israel, those trips are just for Jewish teens. But with Maccabi, what we really wanted to do is build that program up and give kids a chance to participate and to play. Now, we had Division One level athletes, and we had kids that just wanted to have fun. We had kids that probably never been on a team before, but I have to tell you, when they walked into the opening ceremonies, this was just like the Olympics, beginning, middle, and end, and there was an opening ceremonies. And when those kids walked in that opening ceremonies, uh, usually it could be we had an opening at Madison Square Garden at one point. Probably every major city, every major arena, you know, we've been in at one point or another. The kids walk in with such pride and they're wearing their uniform and they might not be able to dribble and shoot at the same time or kick a ball. But they're feeling it right then and there. They're an athlete. They're on a team. They have pride. And then the kids would go through the week. Unlike most youth-oriented tournaments, you would come on a Sunday, you would leave on a Friday. I remember I, I was fortunate to sit on the United States Olympic Committee for 15 years representing the JCCs, and when I would talk about the JCC Maccabi Games, people would look at me like, are, are, seriously, are you from the moon? So when a kid loses on Monday, they have to stay the rest of the week? 
I said, well, yeah, they lose on Monday, but they can still play on Tuesday and maybe even play on Wednesday. The idea is building community and the idea is getting kids to know each other from different parts of North America and the world. It's just not about winning and losing. Unlike some other youth tournaments that, you know, you lose, you go home. Oh, that's not what we did. Not only was that a little different, but I think every other youth tournament in the world, they either stay in dormitories or hotels, or we stayed with home hospitality. We wanted kids and families to get to know each other from different parts of the world, really. And uh, it's funny, we talked to kids that came to Pittsburgh in, in the late 80s, and a couple of them stayed at my parents' home, and they still talk to me or they the connections that are made from families that still know each other decades later is just incredible. While at the JCC and the Maccabi Games, you also developed a game-changing program called Days of Caring, Days of Sharing. Talk to me a little bit about this. Probably in the, in the late 90s when I was running the JCC Maccabi Games, I realized that there had to be something more that we could be doing. We were bringing these large groups of kids into these cities, and we were just playing sports. And I had an idea one day that we should really give something back to the community that we're in. Long story short, we created a program called Days of Caring, Days of Sharing, where we took a half a day out of the competition to work with the community, be it with special needs kids, with senior adults, with inner city children. I remember in Tucson, Arizona, we bagged rice and beans. In Omaha, Nebraska, we took kids from the Boys and Girls Club to Target and to Walmart to fill school bags. We did so many acts of kindness, and it became a a, a threat of the games. For the first couple of years, my kids are paying good money to come here to play sports, and you're taking them out to do tzedakah, to clean alarm, blah, blah, blah. We just knew it was the right thing to do, and we did it. And I remember, again, talking to people at the Olympic table about that, you know, that when you're bringing kids together to play sports, maybe there's a teachable moment in there where it has to be more than sports. It has to about be giving back, repairing the world, doing the right thing. And the nice thing is, is that in my world, in the non-for-profit space, they say when you leave a program and activity, you know, if it maintains itself, you've done a good job. Well, the JCC Maccabi Games have maintained themselves and specifically Days of Caring, Days of Sharing. It's a different name right now, which is fine, but the concept is still there. Kids are still volunteering their time in a community that they're visiting, and it's so good, and it's the right thing to do. Very, very proud of that. What are some of the things that people say to you that were big takeaways from participating in sports as kids? And Probably it goes back to the very beginning that, Fair play, sportsmanship, you're representing yourself and your family, your community, to do the right thing, play hard. Those are the things that once you learn those lessons as a young person and you really are bought in, I think that it just carries with you from generation to generation. If I can tell a story that I shared with the Olympics, in the JCC world in Maccabi, you knew when the team from Akron was going to play the team from Los Angeles. There was no chance in this God's earth that it was going to even be close. The team from Akron had 10 kids. Not one of them played high school basketball, maybe one here and there. The team from Los Angeles, they had 10 kids. Every one of them went to a different high school and all started. Okay. So that was the the challenge. So we created this concept of just being a good sport. 
and not having to run up the score. And that really has become a fabric within the tapestry of the JCC Maccabi Games. So here it is. I'm at the Olympics and I'm sharing these stories, you know, with the people that I sat around. It was the, all the non-for-profit youth serving organizations, the Boys and Girls Clubs, the YMCA, Native Americans, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, special needs, the military. That was our group within the Olympic Committee. And I would talk about these things and they would look at me like, seriously, you're crazy. That would never work in our world. Okay. Well, unless somebody's willing to try it and stand behind it and forcibly say, this is a rule and this is what we're going to do because it's about, it's a teachable moment. Again, not about winning and losing, but doing the right thing and teaching the next generation about sportsmanship. So I'm talking to a representative from the Olympics and said, Lenny, this will never work in the Olympics. And I said, you know what? I get it. In the Olympics, it's a little different, but the junior Olympics, now you might have a different story. And she said, no way. I mean, there was just no way that I was going to move this woman any which way. Okay. So about two months later, there was a newsletter that came out, Snail Mail, and there was a score that talked about the United States, 16 and under team, beating this country in Africa, like 110 to 13. And I circled it, and I wrote a note back, and I said, now you tell me the value of this score. You tell me the value of those kids that were playing, again, for whatever the city was, the ugly American. Did they have to do that? They're devastated. The kids that won, big deal. Hey, we won by 100 points. Really? You want to go there and, and really announce that? So I said, listen, that's the spirit of Rachmanis, okay? That's the spirit. It's a Jewish value. Okay? Fair play sportsmanship and to do the right thing. So, you know, that's something that I look at with what we did at the games and how that sort of filtered through, not only with the games, but so many parts within the JCC world of future competitions, wherever they're on, on or off the court, into summer camps. And really, that's something that we started, and my team and I really pushed it, and we, we knew it was the right thing to do. We were role modeling. The JCC Maccabi Games were inspired by the Maccabiah, which are the games in Israel. Yes. The Maccabiah, I think it's probably 100 years old right now, just sports, healthy mind, healthy spirit, healthy body. That's where it began a long, long time ago in Israel. And then not only did it come to the United States, which the first year was 1982, but there's different versions of the Maccabi experience in different parts of the, the world as well. There's the European games, there's games in Latin America, there's games in Australia, different times of the year. It's really a worldwide global movement. They do amazing, amazing things. The JCC Maccabi Games were one small piece of it, but an important piece. Yeah. How long were you at with the JCC? So I was with the Pittsburgh JCC for 17 years, and then I was with the JCC Association for 15 years, and then I left the JCC Association to become a CEO of an organization called the Henry Kaufman Day Camps in New York City, well, actually in all the boroughs. We were the largest day camping operation in the world with about uh, 16 different JCCs and Ys coming to our three facilities every day in the summer, about 5,000-ish campers and staff every day. And you built that, that organization tremendously. 
Well, I got there. The organization was there, but it was sort of a mama and papa operation. Right. And again, I'll just go back to being a coach. I just took out the game plan that I did back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And I said, I just have to build a team. And I build a team of winning professionals, a team of winning lay leaders in terms of building a board, a winning team of funders in partnership with all the different JCCs and the New York Federation, obviously in New York. Our job was to win. Now you're going to say, well, how do you win at summer camp? Right. Interested? If it was Emma Kaufman camp, where I was actually the director, and we had hundreds of kids there every you know, day in the summer, or the Henry Kaufman campgrounds, I always believed that if you had happy campers and a happy staff, you had a happy camp. Now, if you have a happy camper, staff, and camp, you're going to have happy parents. Now, if you have happy camper, staff, camp, and parents, your board is going to be very happy. Because your board is not hearing anything negative. Right. That was c- complicated at the Henry Kaufman campgrounds because we were dealing with 16 different JCCs. So a great day for me, a great summer for me, is when they didn't, their executives didn't complain to me or they didn't complain to the Federation or they didn't complain to my board. We were winning. And that's what the goal was every day is that we try to keep everybody happy. We try to do the right thing. We try to provide excellent service, excellent customer service, keep things safe, and let kids have fun. You have been graced with many honors in your career. What are some of the highlights? I was inducted into the Western Pennsylvania Jewish Sports Hall of Fame. Okay. And honored by them three different times. And I was honored by the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame, which is actually located at the Suffolk uh, JCCY in uh, Long Island. And then I was honored several years ago at the International Jewish Sports Hall of Fame in Israel. And as humbly as I can say it, and I'm sharing it because I believe that there's the next generation that's coming up and they say, well, if he could do it, maybe I could do it. At this point, I'm the only Jewish communal professional that can say that they've been inducted or honored in all three. That's so incredible. And philanthropy also plays a huge role in your career. It actually, I think it really started with my grandfather, my grandparents that came here from Nazi Germany. They fled after Kristallnacht and they landed in New York. And I remember my grandfather telling me stories about how, the, again, the, the New York Jewish Federation helped him. They helped him find an apartment. They helped him with furniture. They helped him with clothing. They helped him da 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 He tells me that after that experience, because he never had that experience in Germany, he was a businessman. He owned a small department store. And, you know, he was a philanthropic gentleman there. And he came here with nothing. And people were actually generous to him. So I was fortunate that I grew up, you know, with my parents. But my grandparents always either lived next door, ultimately, when I was a teenager, we built a new home and lived under one roof. So I had role modeling of my grandparents and my parents always being generous. In the bakery business, you know, generous, you know, was, you know, <laughs> it was usually a long line at the door, you know, that asked my parents, you know, if they could donate something for the sisterhood or the men's club or the synagogue or the youth department. And my dad just never said no. 
Right. So that's what I that's what I grew up with. How did your family get into the baking business? Did they come to Pittsburgh and they were bakers? No, no, no. Actually, as I start started with my grandfather, so he was a businessman owned a department store. The, the Nazis, the Kristallnacht, you know, they sort of. I don't want to get into that big story, but they had to escape, and they fortunately were able to come to America because we had an uncle here that sent over the visas. So they escaped and they basically came with nothing. They had to leave almost everything there. No money, that's for sure. And a couple, you know, suitcases along the way. My father, he actually was lived in a small town in Germany and he was actually taken to Dachau when he was 13 or 14, the death camp. And he was there for a number of years. He ended up escaping from Dachau, made it over to America. My grandfather got to America. Nobody wanted to give him a job, couldn't speak the language. He was an immigrant. He was Jewish. And then one day he you know, walked into this nice Italian bakery and he basically said in his broken English, listen, I'll work for you for free for a month. Just give me some bread and some cakes so I can feed my family. If you like me, keep me. If not, you can let me go. A couple of weeks later, they hired him. A couple of weeks later, they made him the foreman of the business. So he started to learn baking. He knew he, he realized people had to eat. Right. So fast forward, there was an opportunity for a bakery to be purchased in Pittsburgh, moved the family to Pittsburgh, bought the business. Eventually, my dad, after he escaped from Dachau, was interned in Australia for a year, was in the Australian Army after that. He made it over to America. My mother and he, my mother, they got married. My dad went into the family business. What did he know from baking? Okay. But my grandfather taught him. Right. And again, as humbly as I can say it, we had the best bakery in the city of Pittsburgh. And at that time there was five within like a four block area within the Jewish community of Pittsburgh called Squirrel Hill. But we were very well known. We used the highest quality of ingredients. We were probably the priciest bakery. I always said, you know, we were like a New York bakery in, in, in Pittsburgh. Right. But, you know, we had a good clientele. We became the only kosher bakery in Western Pennsylvania for a number of years. And then ultimately, you know, when I decided not to go into the business and ask permission not to go in the business, they decided that they were going to retire and they sold the, they were going to sell the business, but rather they retired. And so my dad was a, you know, he was going to be the butcher. That's what his internship was back when he was a teenager. Then he became a baker. Now, the natural thing would be, well, was he a candlestick maker? <laughs> the answer is no. He was a dollhouse maker. Oh, my In God. his retirement, yeah. he started to make dollhouses. Okay. So a butcher, a baker, and a dollhouse maker. Okay. That was his, you know, that was his legacy. That's such a great story. Thank you for sharing it. So working hard in entrepreneurship is definitely in your DNA. Yeah, it was. Again, role modeling. And then I had the opportunities to do a couple of things in, in my life outside of the normal philanthropy that you would give to, you know, individuals, organizations, whatnot. And I proudly say, you know, probably two of the highlights of my career. One was a organization that I helped in Israel Israel Center for Disabled Children outside of Tel Aviv. And I was there visiting when I was working for the JCC Association. I had a group of Jewish communal professionals with me. We went to visit. I got very inspired by what I saw. And 
we were taking a tour and we he took us into what was the the weight room. Well, it had a universal that Moses used. That's how old that was. And I said to him, Kobe, uh, this is it. He says, well, you know, money's tight, the budget. And I just said, you know what? I think I can help. I know a couple of people. Fast forward six months with the help of a number of uh, fitness companies that I had been working with at that time, Savex International, Precore were two of the big ones, got a lot of equipment donated, uh, raised some money, sent it all over to Israel on these a big container, got to Israel, and lo and behold, you know, they opened up a new fitness center with everything from stationary bikes to treadmills to ellipticals to you name it. It was phenomenal. And it was an aha moment because I know that along with a lot of other people that this is what we did. And it stayed for about a decade and not, they've since upgraded to the next level, but that was a real feel good. And then probably the one that is the, is the most special Growing up in Pittsburgh and growing up when I did, my first hero was the great and late uh, Roberto Clemente, baseball player for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And Roberto was a role model, not only the way he played the game, but also his what he did off the field. As a matter of fact, he died in a sort of a philanthropic way. 1970-71, he was taking a plane load of uh, supplies, medical supplies and food to Nicaragua after the earthquake. And his you know, the plane perished in the middle of the ocean. He died. And terrible, terrible situation. And fast forward, I'm at summer camp, Emma Kaufman. I'm getting ready to retire from camp and move on to my next uh, career in New York. And somebody was interviewing me. And Lenny, if there was one thing that you could do over, what would it be that you would have done? And I said, oh, without question, I would have had a Torah at camp. Now, a Torah very important within the Jewish community. You know, you read from it on the Sabbath. We always would borrow one from one of the synagogues in Pittsburgh and bring it to camp, but it was never ours. And we had a consultant come into camp. Interestingly enough, I had mentioned his name earlier, ended up being one of my supervisors and, you know, good friends and surrogate dads, this guy, Lenny Rubin. When he was consulting in camp in the late 80s, he says, how can you have a Jewish camp without a Torah? And that all was sort of stuck in my head. Okay, fast forward. Now I'm working in New York at the JCC Association where Lenny Rubin works. And there's a division there called the JWB's Chaplain's Division. And they're basically responsible for Jewish servicemen and women throughout the world with the exception of Israel. So the rabbi comes into my office one day and he says, listen, we're getting ready to close the bases in Iran, Iraq, right before the wars. And we brought some Torahs home from the bases, and they're downstairs. Do you know any summer camps that might be interested in a Torah? <laughs> well, That's awesome. My eyes lit up. I, I said, Davey, and then I said, oops, sorry, Rabbi. And he laughed. I said, take me down. Let's go see them. So he took me down. There was a Torah. I'm a big guy. There's a Torah that was as big as me, weighed hundreds of pounds. There was a middle-sized one, and then there was a little one, like a baby Torah. Maybe it weighed 30 pounds. And I said, oh, I want the big one. He says, first of all, you can't afford the big one. But second of all, again, in the Jewish tradition, there's on, you know, when you uh, sort of lift the Torah to put it back into the ark, it's something called a hagba. And somebody has to pick up the Torah to put it back in. Right. So somebody has to be strong enough to lift the 100-plus pounds. 
Right. So he said to me, and who's going to use these? Uh, what kind of campers do you have? And what's the age of them? This Torah weighs over 150 pounds. I said, maybe I should take the little one. So I took the little one. And again, it was sort of right after my father passed away. So I said, wow, this is great. I can buy the Torah. I can dedicate it in memory of my dad in honor of my mother. This is perfect. Just one thing. I wonder how much it's going to cost. Rabbi, how much is it going to cost? He says, you can't afford it. But for you? So he gives me the price. I said, okay, I can do that. And I figure, well, how am I going to pay for it? Am I going to take it from this bank, from this fund, from this, from this? And I have an aha moment. Well, a friend of mine had given me a Roberto Clemente game-used baseball bat. And that was my treasure. And I used to also be into sports collectibles, buying and selling and trading. And to have Roberto Clemente baseball bat, that was like gold, diamonds, platinum. I mean, it was like you were it. So I said, you know what? And I said it with like love in my heart. It's just a bat. And yes, Roberto used it. He touched it. He swung with it. But so I said, you know what? And I've been watching this bat go up in value from $500 to you don't even want to know. So I said, I'm going to sell the bat. So I went to a national show in Atlantic City. I sold the bat. Now, here it is. I'm in Atlantic City, and I got a lot of cash in my pocket. I get back on the bus, and I go home. I give the rabbi the money he needs. I give a little extra to the JCC Association because a friend of mine had just passed away, a colleague. And her family just started a fund, and I was good. So here it is. I got the Torah. We have to re-kosher the Torah because it had just been, you know, needed some touch-ups by a, a scribe. And now I'm getting ready to donate the Torah to the camp. And we had a big ceremony. It was really special. My mother was able to come. And it was meaningful. And for 15 or so years, I really couldn't tell anybody the story of the Torah because I didn't tell the IRS that I took cash. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. And somebody told me it's a 10-year waiting period. So if anybody from the IRS is listening, don't come after me. I did this with love in my heart. We were going to rededicate the Torah. And a friend of mine, good friend Bobby Harris in Atlanta, he was at another camping conference. And he was talking to some staff if they knew the story behind the Torah and how the Torah got to Amok Camp. They said no. So Bobby called me up that next day and he said, Lenny, we got to tell the story of the Torah because it's an incredible story. Who sells a Roberto Clemente baseball bat to buy a Torah? Nobody. Matter of fact, some people would say that they would sell a Torah to buy a Roberto Clemente baseball bat. So we had a rededication and we invited Roberto Clemente Jr. to the camp and we rededicated the Torah Roberto Clemente was there. He was able to speak on behalf of his family. It was, again, it was a meaningful moment, not obviously for me, okay, but more importantly for the kids that were there because they got to learn a little bit about Roberto's dad, which most of them had no clue about who he was. That's such a great story. You have lots of really inspirational sayings and life lessons that you have learned and shared over the years. Lennyisms. I love this one. Take the high road. Tell me a little bit about 
the inspiration behind that saying? I think everything always comes back to where I started my career at the Pittsburgh JCC and coaching and the opportunities to teach. It's easy to teach somebody to dribble a ball or to, you know, to make a basket, but it's the life lessons. And we, we dealt with a lot of diversity along the way. There was a number of occasions you know, when we would go into different churches or different facilities, a lot of anti-Semitism. And I would be in the timeout and I'd tell my guys, I said, listen, stay on the high road, do the right thing. Okay, we win like a, you know, a champion, we lose like a champion. Those were just words, but I always believed that actions, okay, were, were stronger than words. And just as an example, so we'd be in a gym and, it, and we played in the CYO Youth League, Catholic Youth Organization. We were the only Jewish community center team that played. And we go to a church and there was just some stupid people there and they would say stupid things or they would throw pennies or they just weren't nice. Right. Sometimes we have to have a police escort to come out. And then when that church group came to our JCC, what did we do? Well, we put water bottles on the bench. We put towels on the bench. We cut up oranges so that they had a snack at halftime. We did everything we could to welcome our guests into our home, uh, to take a higher road, okay, to be able to sort of a teachable moment. And, you know, when you're doing that with 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids, I think it has an impact. Well, now I know it has an impact. Back then, I was hoping. I didn't even know why I was doing it. Right. Other than it seemed like the right thing to do. Now I know it was the right thing to do because 20, 30, 40 years later, a lot of those same guys and girls come to me where they post things on Facebook or in, you know, LinkedIn. Oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? So I know it was the right thing. And it's so important now. I mean, especially I'm talking to you and everybody's in quarantine. And you recently started a new company, Lost Tribe Esports, which I am sure is doing really well in this quarantine time. How did you get into esports? Yeah, if you haven't told by now, I like to tell a lot of stories. That's how we're going to get through this, too. So the first story is very simple. I'm sitting in the backyard of a friend, and he's involved with you know philanthropy. And I just asked him what's going on in the global Jewish community and what's going on in America. And one of the conversations that he had was, you know, there's a really big divide right now in the teen world of engagement, and there's a big challenge of reengaging teens back into the community. Now. This isn't just in the Jewish community, post bar bat mitzvah. That's really where at the age of 13, this is in every community. Kids start to get independent. But in the Jewish community, you know, when I left New York JCC Association in 2008, people talked about 50% of Jewish teens being disengaged. When I came back into this game, people talked about 80% being disengaged. So if you're a business person and you're saying there's something wrong here, 50% to 80%. Now, post-pandemic, post-virus, it could be 90%, okay, because of the situation. But I just said, you know what? He, he said to me, I'm sorry, he said to me, you know, if you could solve that problem, you'd, you know, you're like an Emmy or an Oscar, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize. So we're starting to laugh and joke. And who knew? A month later, I'm down at my family's home in Atlanta. I have three boys. The middle one, Zivan, he was 
downstairs in the basement. His older brother, Dotan and Dolev, were upstairs. It's about 1130 at night. I'm walking down the steps to you know where my room was, and I hear all this yelling and screaming like a maniac. I turn the corner. He's got these headphones on. He's yelling and screaming at the TV. I get in front of the TV. Like then a 13-year-old, he's trying to shoot me out of the way. I tell him to take off his headphones. And I said, what are you doing? I said, are you yelling at the TV? Are you insane? He said, no. Have you ever heard of the internet? And I said, yeah. Well, I'm playing Eli over the internet. And I look around the room and I'm still looking for Eli. He says, no, Lenny, over the internet, Marnie, I asked him to repeat it. I asked him a simple question. He had just played in the JCC Maccabi games in Dallas. I said, Z, you just played. You met 100 kids playing baseball. If you could play these 100 kids from all over North America, Lenny, that would be amazing. He used a word I can't repeat. I said, okay. I literally walked into my room and hand to God within 30 seconds, I had this global vision for teen engagement in something called eSport that I had nothing, knew nothing about. I never played video games. I just, it wasn't part of my DNA, but I had this vision. And at that point, life changed. And I started to do what I did. I built a team. I built a team of volunteers, of people that knew a little bit more than I did about gaming, that knew a little bit about business, that knew a little bit about marketing and philanthropy. And before you know it, okay, started to put some professional staff together, started to raise some money. And with the understanding that we wanted to engage and re-engage not only Jewish teens within the Jewish community, but because of my background with the JCC, all teens, but really the focus is on Jewish teens in the Jewish community. One thing led to another, and let's just say that for a number of years, probably the first three years, I had to make people comfortable with the uncomfortable because they had this vision of video games and kids being downstairs in their basement, eating Doritos and drinking Red Bull. And where it is today, billion dollar industry, 500 plus colleges and universities have esport teams. A number of them, hundreds of them are giving out scholarship. Probably 10,000 high schools now have esport teams. It's tied into STEM education. Wall Street's in it. Every major network is in it. And right now with the virus, if you watch ESPN, they're showing NBA 2K games and Madden games and baseball games and racing games. I mean, thank God. So this big black cloud over the world, and there's this silver lining called gaming esports. So this thing that we called Lost Tribe Esports, we created it. It's a non-for-profit for all the right reasons. We decided that we weren't going to do any shooter games. So we play the sports games and we play the fantasy games. And we're really looking to engage and re-engage Jewish teenagers in this very difficult time. We've had, as humbly as I can say it, incredible success so far. I've had some incredible donors that have made this dream come true. We're looking for some major Jewish communal philanthropy to help us you know, get to the next level of where we need to be. We have a five-year vision. I have a number of amazing friends that believe in me and believe in what we've been able to accomplish in the past. And what's really cool, you've asked me a lot of questions, and I really appreciate this, but at the end of the day, what esports made me do is think about what made 
the basketball program, the summer camp, the JCC Maccabi games, what made them all successful? Now, if my uncle Stanley's listening from Pittsburgh. He taught me a valuable lesson back in the late 70s. It was about numbers and budgets. I can tell you all the wonderful stories about what we're doing, but numbers and budget. So I can tell you from a numbers perspective and a budgetary perspective, we're having impact. What did I do to make everything else successful with the budgets and numbers when we had a summer camp that went from under 100 kids to over 900 kids or a basketball program, 100 kids to over 1,000 kids? We had to make everything that I was doing in the early part of my career, we had to make it cool, fun, and competitive. And that's what we did with esports, except for it was already cool, fun, and competitive. So what we learned, it was also social. So I just took that, what we learned from decades and decades, okay, and everything that I had done, we put it into the esport mix, and this is what we came out with. Cool, fun, and competitive, added a little bit of Jewish. It's very social. And the interesting thing is that, well, and this goes to the pandemic, while parents were struggling at home on how to make Zoom work or how to make Google Hangout work and how to network with your friends over the internet, Gen Z was already doing it. Right. They, they were doing it through gaming. So there was great lessons to be learned for their parents in order to be able to communicate within a network. Uh, and that's really, you know, the excitement of where we're at is being able to build these networks. And it's very predominantly male driven, but we're very engaged with, the, you know, with getting more and more girls. As a matter of fact, I'm proud to say one of our winners of our last Madden tournament was a young girl that participated. She beat all the boys. It was great. When did Lost Tribe Esports launch? We launched February of I guess it was 19, in Denver at the BBYO International Convention, where we first sort of laid out our platform. And now we're looking to partner with all these different youth-serving organizations and collegiate-serving organizations. And I have to say, again, I use the word humbly as much as I can. We did, you know, if this was a real estate company, they talk about we did a land grab. But what we did is an organizational grab. Okay, and we really built our platform in saying to the community, listen, you all don't have to do this independently. Let's work together. Let's build an organization that we can provide gaming if it's in the youth space, if it's in the summer camp space, if it's in the collegiate space, if it's in the in the day school space. We can provide you the technology in order to make this happen. And we can have regional tournaments, we can have national tournaments, we can have international tournaments. Right now, it's all virtual. But ideally, we want to have in-person events. We were having in-person events before the virus. And we see all roads leading to Israel at one point, you know, for kids and college-age students to get over there. and Like what you do with the Maccabi Games, with the JCC. Right, with Maccabi, with Birthright to have another experience where kids that might never have wanted to go over to Israel. Hey, uh, Israel is the startup nation. They have more technology companies, more startups that are coming out of there than almost any other country in the world. And there's a lot of esports startups that are happening out there, a lot of technology that's happening. And if we can get kids to go over there to learn a little bit about their history, about the country, about traditions, and 
a little bit about esports and then be able to game and meet new kids from all over the world. Win-win. Yeah. It's amazing. What I care about is building community. And what we're doing in the Jewish community, anybody can do in any given community. And the idea is once we build in our community, you know, hey, let's go and hang with the Boys and Girls Club. Let's go hang with the kids from the YMCA. At the end, that's how I grew up in Pittsburgh. You right. know, it, was, it, was a, it was a melting pot. So those are the kinds of things that excite me as I round third base in my career. I mean, you've come a long way with all of the things that you've done. So what are one of your biggest sort of career lessons about pivoting or reinventing or taking things to the next level that you might share with my entrepreneurial listeners and myself? It's sort of what everybody else is saying. Is follow your heart. Follow your passion. Every so often, I watch Shark Tank. And Mark Cuban, he's from Pittsburgh, went to Emma Kaufman camp before I was a director, though. And Mark would always say, if you're not all in, I'm not all in. And I've always been all in. When I started esports, I wasn't all in. I actually left my career as the CEO of the Henry Kaufman Campgrounds to be all in because that's how much I believed in this. I left a great salary to working for free for a year because that's how firmly I believed that this was the right thing to do. This was going to be a game changer, not only for the Jewish community, but I believe for Generation Z on how we were able to connect with them and how they're able to connect with us and the lessons that they can teach us along the way. You've accomplished so much in your career. How do you personally stay fit and healthy? If you remember early on, I talked about my grandmother giving me cookies, okay, when I was sick. And so I had this addiction to chocolate chip cookies, which turned into cake, which turned into almost anything sweet. So I got a little chunky, to put it mildly. And on January 28th, I decided that I needed to go in. Well, actually, I decided six months before that, that I couldn't do it by myself anymore, no matter how hard I tried to work out whatever exercise, whatever diet I was on, it didn't work. So I had uh, bariatric surgery at NYU on January 28th. It was incredibly successful. The hospital was great. Surgeon was great. I'm happy to say I'm, a, I'm down about 70 pounds wow, right that's incredible. now. And because I'm in Scottsdale, the weather's nice. I'm able to walk probably for about 30, 40 minutes every morning. And then in the evening, I get on my bike. I have a, an outdoor mountain bike, and I go for about 30 to 45 minutes. Again, it gets a little hot. Now it's over 100 every day. But because there's no great hills out here, it's not so bad. So I, I get a lot of exercise that way. And I'm hoping that when I get back to New York, you know, that I'll be able to once again get into a strength training uh, routine that I did when I was much, much younger. That's great. So, well, it's good. So you're I'm feeling, feeling great. You're feeling good. It was successful. This was just like a couple months ago then. Yeah, January 28th and have reduced three or four of the medications I already take. So that's exciting. That's great. Congratulations. That's huge. Yeah, I'm very, very excited. And I guess if I say this next thing, I probably have to do it. So I'm going to say it. I'll hold you accountable. One of my goals was to be able to walk the New York Marathon. I know I won't be able to run it that far, but I think I can walk it. And that's one of my goals, okay, is now in my next level of training to be able to do that one day. So I said it, there you go. Hey, ready, willing, and able. Yeah, so maybe 2021. This has been so great, Lenny. Thank you so much for 
for hopping on a call and for sharing all your stories. People can go to your website and learn more about you, right? What's your website? For esports, it's losttribeesports.org. And for my own personal one, and the only reason we did the personal one is I thought I needed to find a job at one point. It's Lenny.Silberman. And we, I guess we should also thank my good friend, the big macher, Bill Abramson, for connecting you and I. Bill is awesome, and I'm so glad that he connected us. So thank you, Bill Abramson. And thank you so much, Lenny. This has been a true pleasure. Oh, this will be one of the highlights of my life. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com, and let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out 